This is a it's a five point five percent hoppy pale ale. Nice. I was I think I might have gone overboard, but I tried to make a um, I wanted it to have even though it's only five point five percent, I wanted to have it like to have a lot of body, so it's not thin. But I feel like it's yeah. almost got too much body. I think I went overboard a little bit. Mm-mm. No. Mm-mm. But it's not also it's not also it's just not as I feel like it's lacking something a little bit. It, something happened or something, I don't know. It's just not quite hoppy or zippy enough for me. I haven't checked the final pH. Your beers so. tend to be on the acidic side. Like, you like that kind of orange juice, bitter. And this one is lighter on that than normal. It's got good hops. It's yeah. a great IPA, I think. Yeah. Um, I think it succeeds at the body portion of it. It doesn't have as much acidity as some of your other ones do. I know what you mean by acidity, but this is and this is so counterintuitive. But when you, like, really heavily dry hop um, or just hop in general a beer... Which does bring out a lot of that real fruity and feels acidity. It actually raises the pH, meaning huh. the acidity goes down. Hops cause the the beer to the pH to go up, so down so less acidity. Hmm. But there's a lot of it's mainly the I believe it's the phenols that give you that feeling of of acidity, and it yeah. can almost a little bit of if it's real extreme, like if it's a a beer that's made really recently, it's not even quite ready yet. Um, it's almost oh, you'll call it hop burn, like you swallow it and you're like. It almost kind of burns a little bit. Um, yeah. And it feels kind of like acidity, but it's actually not acidity. It's, that's what's missing is the, the fruitiness. Because the fruitiness and, and the bitter kind of gives me that orange juice yeah. acidity, mm-hmm. which is what I think I'm trying to describe. This doesn't give me that. I get the, the bitter hops, but I don't get that fruitiness that would. But I, I mean, it's, it's good the way it is. Yep. Honestly. Thank you. Yeah, it's okay. Um, it's not my favorite, but. I like it. I learned some things. I'm trying to make a key lime pie goza right now. Damn homebrewers in your flavored beers. <laughs> so I'm I'm taking the base recipe because you know I did that Berliner. Are you going to do like a Thanksgiving dinner one that's going to taste like cranberries and gravy? And <laughs> is, that a, is that a challenge? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> um, you know I did that Berliner Weiss uh, uh-huh. a couple months ago. Same base recipe. Um. But there's a lot more salt because it's a goza. Mm. Um, I'm probably going to skip the whole, um, uh, what are the cilantro seeds? Coriander thing. Because I really want it to just be like a key lime pie. Is that what coriander is? Yeah, cilantro, cilantro seed. seeds. In I fact, um, did not know that. In fact, in lots of the world, I think maybe like in Europe or England, um, cilantro is called coriander leaf. Oh, <laughs> interesting. Yeah, I love cilantro, but I've I've never known. Ooh, I don't know. I, I, know, I don't know anything there. about cilantro. it. Other than I like to eat it. Yeah, it's. <laughs> I, I do love some cilantro. Some people. I mean, there's a certain like gene. A white boy supposed to say cilantro. Cilantro. Uh, <laughs> uh, I guess there's a gene that some people taste when they eat cilantro. They just taste soap. I've heard that. Yeah. So Not me. I'm glad I don't have that gene. Yeah, that's a horrible gene to have. <laughs> well, I mean, tastes change over time. I mean, there's a lot of things that I can eat now that I couldn't stomach when I was a kid, just texture-wise or even flavor-wise. But uh, I'm letting more of, more of it into my diet. <clears throat> well, John, uh, a couple couple days late today because of some severe weather we were supposed to have that never really materialized the way it was supposed to. So, better safe than sorry, I guess, huh? <laughs> are you are you with me, John? Yeah, we, we are recording. No, we are. Sorry. <laughs> anyway. I, I was thanking our one, one live listener for... <laughs> <laughs> well, we we have we have some news on the M and A front this week. M and A mergers and acquisitions. Oh, that's right. But it's not. It is. Is it an acquisition? <sighs> okay, so you're, are you talking about oh, so we sales. Have, we have two different things yeah. to talk about. Okay. So the, the first one was that sales, Salesforce is buying 
It's so it's so yeah. confusing. But Salesforce is buying. Well, let me back up. Salesforce.com, which I guess that's not what they're called anymore, but they're buying Salesforce.org, which is what it is still called. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so Salesforce.org is the company, or yeah, it's an, or the organization. The I guess it's an entity. It's a Salesforce.org would be a five hundred one four C, I guess. Yeah, five hundred one four C. So it's a it's a public benefit corporation essentially. Mm-hmm. There's an I guess that's what the IRS calls it, and I'm sure California has their corresponding you know entity type or whatever. But that's the that's the organization that sells licenses at a discount to uh, to like nonprofits, schools, charities, whatever. Probably gov- uh, did they do government or is that a separate division? I feel like that's no, that's got to be Salesforce. That's, that's proper. big Salesforce. Yeah. yeah. Um, so not government. <clears throat> um, but yeah, I mean, I feel like it's .org has been around for a long time, uh, and the company that my employer does, uh, we are a, uh, I guess, a .org partner, something like that. And so this is a, this is a big deal for us. It was interesting, and and also this this week was the higher. Oh, higher Ed Summit, Salesforce's Higher Ed Summit, mm-hmm. which is run by .org um, in San Diego. And I, I don't know if it was just coincidence or they just if they wanted to announce this during a Higher Ed Summit. I feel like that's not the case because I'm not sure that pe- people think it's great news that yeah. Salesforce is doing this. It doesn't coincide with any of their annual quarterly start or anything. It doesn't coincide with their tax filings are different, right? So it doesn't correspond with that. Yeah, I have no idea. I don't know when they're fiscal year or whatever it is. I, I don't know. Um, starts in... No, I, th- I think the, the thing that... And I, and I haven't talked to anyone at Salesforce really about this, um, nor have I talked to really anyone internally about this. One of those weeks. Yeah. Which is like every week, <laughs> it seems like nowadays. But I, the... Uh, based, just based on the... Sorry for the lip smack there. Wow. There's one. <laughs> we found our counter, by <laughs> yeah. the way. I found... Is this mine or yours? It might be mine. I think yeah. I had the orange one. I think you had a green one. That it might be in my bag. Actually, I think that is my bag. Mm. This is yours. Anyway, bell's over here. I know. I need my bell so I can ding you. That's my bell. I think. Um, what was I saying? Anyway, uh, it seems like there's a lot of confusion about like what, why, mm-hmm. why is Salesforce buying Salesforce.org? I mean, it was created. .org was created for a reason. You know, it was to it was to have that firewall. I mean, I'm actually, I'm making stuff up now, so I'm totally. I mean, I think spinning. that's the start of it. Yeah, it's like start of it. Is why a, was desor- why does .org exist in the first place? Yeah, and it's just so you can have an organization that is a 5014C. It's not a for-profit entity, so it doesn't, and it's not a public company, so it doesn't it doesn't have to worry about um, expectations and and earnings and growth and all that. And it's and it's again, it's firewalled off from Salesforce. I mean, I think. I guess Salesforce doesn't even own it because Salesforce just had to buy it. So it wasn't even owned by Salesforce, I guess. Um, so it had, it didn't, it didn't answer to that mothership and it didn't have those same concerns that a for-profit company has. It can really just focus on, um, and I don't think it lost money, but it was, it's not, its goal was not to be profitable, right? It, it was goal is just to serve its, these constituents. I wonder if it just needed a constant, in, a constant infusion of money. Not that I saw. Um, in fact, I mean, they they published the numbers. It's um, it is it, it did not need infusion of money. It was it was self sustaining. It was sustaining. I yeah. think. I think that's a good word for it. And the goal was, you know, and, and I the number I saw was, and I'm just this is published. This is not based on anything I know as an as an insider. Um, but like for ex- an example given was in this article was uh, like a typical license of 
like a list price, I guess, for unlimited edition of Salesforce is $300 a month mm. for a user. And .org sells that at, then again, that's just the example was given, $72 a month, right? So they're able to sell licenses at a, a bigger, and also they, you know, they have the program where they give away like the first 10 licenses or whatever, like you get a base amount free if you're, if you're a nonprofit from .org. And then they, you know, they pass that. one one one. Yeah. I think it's, I think .org is part of their one one one. I think it's part of the, I mean, right. It has to be, right? Because they're giving away, they're kind of, I guess, giving away stuff to. Well, yeah. So by proxy, they're, they're giving away Salesforce licenses to .org and .org is selling those? Yeah, something like that. Something I guess like you could, yeah, I mean, I think of .org as like a reseller for Salesforce yeah. in a way. So I mean, you know, I think everyone on everyone was has been totally fine, and and I think everyone understood the concept of .org, why it exists, especially .org's customers and its partners. Again, disclaimer: I have to do this nowadays because I have a real job. Um, disclaimer: I I do work for a .org partner. <laughs> um, and I think everyone, you know, everyone got it and was fine with it. And so it's it's confusing as why Salesforce is saying no, we're going to end this. We're just going to. We're going to absorb this into Salesforce. And of course, there's a lot of, you know, first of all, we're just the whole psychology thing of, you know, you're moving my cheese. Like, I'm scared now. I don't like change. It gives me anxiety. Yeah. Um, what has that going to affect me and all that stuff? So there's, um, I'm sure, the, you know, that, that typical type of anxiety, whether or not it's rational or not, right? People sure. may have nothing to worry about. And like, you know, you'll keep your, because what their Salesforce is saying is, you know, we're going to, it's going to be run by the same person, Ackers or something like that, Gary Ackers, or I don't know, someone, Bob Acker, Bob Acker, maybe. Um, and uh, you know the, the the sales, you know your account executives, and you know it's all all going to be the same um, same thing. And, and the and the people in the in the Good Day Sir Army that um, that have reached out to me and said, hey, you know, I'm uh, yeah, this is happening, and it's fine. You know, that's their so the employees there. I think so far their perception at dot org is like it's going to be fine. Like yes, we're going to be owned by sales or. Salesforce is going to buy us, and, and I'm assuming .org will be dissolved, and they'll just be, it's uh, what the Salesforce is saying, at least Keith Block said, this is that it's going to be essentially a vertical. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a vertical in Salesforce. Um, so, you know, that's, that's what they're saying, is don't, you know, don't worry, you know, your licenses, in, there's no impending or near-term change to how your licenses work, who you deal with, Um. I imagine there's the inevitable, like we won't need. We're gonna have some. We're gonna have some overlap in terms of like some accounting people and whatever, like operational stuff. So, I don't. I don't know that I've ever so seen I've Salesforce. Heard, I've heard one argument say that one potential reason was just the ability to to acquire a certain amount of talent. That Salesforce, as a larger company with stock options and things that they have to offer, yep. that org does not. Right. This so org doesn't have stock. Right. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> And that they might weird. maybe not only keep talent, like maybe maybe Mr. Acker was was like I, I kind of want something a little bit more. Yeah. I'm just guess speculating, but maybe yeah. maybe in order to acquire more executive talent to be able to grow this, maybe take this internationally as well. I, I don't know how how international is .org. International, yeah. I don't feel like they're super international. I'm sure there's somewhat, but I, I, it seems like it's a. I really don't know. My guess is it's it's highly domestic focused. Because it seems to me like as a way, if that is the reason, like maybe to be able to, to acquire better talent or keep talent, that maybe they're trying. They've reached a limit of where they can only expand so far, and they need to take that next step. And just like any other company, you need a, someone bigger to come along and 
infuse you with with more options. Yeah, and I guess I mean I guess dot org couldn't offer um, Salesforce um, stock as as we know Salesforce likes loves to do. <laughs> they like to pay in stock, um, and I guess dot org didn't have access to that. Well, if I could get some Salesforce stock ten years ago for what it's and keep it till today, it's that's a good deal. Um, yeah, it would have been a good deal, and what right? Which is why again, it's against it's which is why it's a big part of the compensation package. If yeah. you're a Salesforce employee, if if you do get um, some kind of options or some kind of grants or whatever. So, um, yeah, I think I mean it sounds like at least Salesforce's messaging is that short term. You know, everything's fine. Don't worry. Um, whether you're an employee or a the customer of dot org, um, but let's see. I highlighted some quotes here. So okay, so so okay. This this entity right dot org was created to sell. I guess this is more baselining again. So maybe we're going backwards. But was created to sell software at a discounted rate to nonprofit schools and other groups that struggle to pay for high value software. Yeah, Salesforce.com is a public benefit corporation, and instead will become a business unit of Salesforce. Now this is interesting. The Salesforce Foundation, which I think for the longest time I thought was the same thing. I don't know, but it's not. Salesforce.org is separate from the Salesforce Foundation. The Salesforce Foundation is a nonprofit, right? Um, and somehow, I don't know how this works, but the so Salesforce is going to buy .org for $300 million. Mm-hmm. But somehow that $300 million is actually going to the foundation, which is, a again, a yet a separate entity. So Salesforce is a for public, for you know, as a C corporation, Delaware C corporation. Mm-hmm. Uh, .org is a five hundred one four C, I believe, and the foundation is a is a legit five hundred one three C or C three. Am I getting the backwards? Whatever three and four, right? There's yeah, they're they're different entities for taxable reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like the foundation. If you wanted to donate to the Salesforce Foundation, you write the foundation a check, and you get to write that off in your taxes. Dot um, org is not the same way. Like you don't, I don't think you donate to dot org. It's, it's not, it's not that type of. It's not really a charity. It's not a charity. Right. It's a public benefit corporation. It, it, they're diff, tax, different tax treatment, and then the rules I have to play by are a little bit different. But so foundation is not. I won't say this doesn't affect foundation, but foundation is not going anywhere. It's that's the one one one. You know, um, could be, it could work just like you know. All other financial institutions, you have a bank that that issues a loan, and then you have the underwriter and everything. Or yeah, the bank that's yeah. I don't know. I don't understand all this stuff. But you have banks and you have underwriters and all those kind of things because the person selling it can't own the loan or something like that. Some some complicated thing like that, and it could be the same kind of structure. Yeah. It's just a a separation of concerns there. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> but I wonder if if maybe some new regulation or maybe just the size of Salesforce has allowed them to kind of treat that. Uh, those licenses differently because I guess yeah. one of the main concerns is that you have these licenses that are selling way under whatever they say their market value is, mm-hmm. which would bring down their profit numbers. Right? Sure. Yep. And, and that's actually one of the, let's <laughs> said the, the, some of the, there was actually one, what, well, I got to give some credit here. Who was, this was market watch, uh, Therese Paletti actually did a little bit of digging and reading about this. Whereas all the oh, other ones, did. tech crunch and all these, other, all these other garbage being a real journalist, <laughs> yeah. not a tech journalist. <laughs> Oh, John, you challenging me? That I am, sir. Well? Keep in mind, these aren't real journalists, Richard. They're tech journalists. Oh, and there, there is a difference. 
Anyway, yeah, and I think to me the thing I think what people are thinking is, okay, so I'm you know I'm not going to freak out or worry or whatever, but what, what, why, why, and why now? Yeah, why did Salesforce ever create this thing, and now why are they dissolving? Why are they going to buy and dissolve it? There's got to be a, there's a reason. Yeah. The question is, what is that reason? And and especially considering that, you know, Salesforce struggling to be profitable, you know, kind of marginally profitable these days, I guess, but still, I mean, a lot of lot of investor expectation that Salesforce continue to bend that cost and margin curves and everything. Um, and if you're taking on this .org entity, which is going to be far less profitable mm-hmm. than Salesforce is, that's going to hurt you. And, and they've already, I think, it was either Keith Block or, or um, Hawkins, Mark Hawkins, the CFO, came out and said, you know, hey, this is this is going to this is going to hurt a little bit. <laughs> Sure. And they uh, they already updated their as a part of this announcement they updated their investor guidance that we are going to take a hit on this and so then it begs the question was okay so we realize there's a lot of pain involved in doing this which begs even the question more why are you doing it All right uh, so that I don't know I mean I can only speculate one of the things is with a lot of these acquisitions is it just it it helps the bottom it helps the the, the top line. Salesforce needs to continue showing that growth. They've got a very high, uh, richly valued stock that's based on many years of aggressive future growth, which they've got to they've got to match that. They've got to meet that expectation. Sure. And you know, you buy a Mule, you buy all these different things. Buy one of your own. That's three hundred million dollars a year. That's that's not chump change. Even you know, even though it's not profitable, doesn't help the bottom line very much that we know of. But it certainly will help the top line some. That that that'll help. So maybe they needed it revenue wise. Maybe. Um, so yeah, here's how Mark Hawkins says it's a really, it's a really nice business. That's that's a weird thing to say. <laughs> it's a nice business. Um, he, he told the few analysts who listened to the company's conference call on Monday. He said uh, in 2018.org had a revenue of 250 million dollars with a low profit margin. But according to Teres here or Teresa, what was it? Teres, yeah, Teres. I like that name. Uh, but Salesforce sounds like it wants to grow that profit margin eventually, which likely means jacking up the bills being sent to nonprofits and schools. Uh, there's another Hawkins quote. This is, this is a business that does have a lower operating margin at this stage, but it's also going to be on a pathway in convergence. On a pathway in convergence over time to our overall Salesforce operating margin over the long term. You know what it so might that's be? What con- that's what's concerning the .org constituents right now. Yeah, but you know what it might be? It might be it might not it might not be an impact to nonprofits. I think they'll still give nonprofits probably more leeway than they do higher education. I think they want Really? That, I think they want that higher ed business. And I think that business I can tell you I can tell you from um my new employment experience that a lot of these higher ed I mean, sure there are you got your Harvards and your, and your all these universities with really absurd endowments. They shouldn't be getting discounts from anyone. <laughs> this is just rich people giving money to rich people. It's, or actually, I don't even want to get into it. But just, <laughs> they have stupid amounts of money, yeah. right? Um, but there's a lot of these small private schools that are just kind of region, or these regional small private schools mm-hmm. that, you know, f- that serve a certain niche, you know, Um Providing good educations, you know, main, main, most of them liberal arts, but there's different, there's, you know, there's different ones that have different focuses. And a, a lot of these kids that are going nowadays, their, their parents went there and um, 
and they're not cheap either. Either I mean, they're private schools, so they're expensive to go to. Um, but they but they don't have these are not profitable schools by any stretch. Um, they have small endowments, not really profitable. I mean, some of them have cash flow problems, and that's part of like what mm-hmm. what we do is we help we're helping them, you know, helping them do things to improve cash flow, right? Um, and, and I think that's 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 a business model that they can attack, and they can say, "Hey, we're offering th- these." What I'm saying is, there's there's not a lot of room there. They they can't afford if if. And I don't again. I, let me just say, I don't think this is going to happen. I don't think Salesforce is going to come. I, I don't think I don't I don't I don't really have any reason to believe, despite what Mark Hawkins just said. I think he might get reprimanded for that statement. I don't. I can't imagine them ending like the discounts in in any sort of near term situation. Um, and I don't think they. I don't think they could. I mean, like I said, a lot of these. I mean, even you know, you think, oh, it's a university, it's a college. They they should, they can they can pay the full price. No, actually, they can't. A lot of them cannot. No, I don't mean so much in in trying to squeeze more money out of them, but it is it is about extending long term contracts, filling up that gap bucket with more and more prospects. That's oh, that's absolutely yeah. I mean, keep, keeping that yeah, you're talking about like the um like the deferred revenue numbers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, those are super important. Those non cancelable contracts. Those are. Yeah. I mean, that's that's those are literally Salesforce's biggest asset is the is the non this is that giant stack of non cancelable contracts they have with customers. Yeah. But um, I, I certainly don't think anybody in Salesforce is doing something evil or nefarious or any any of those kind of conspiracy theories where they're trying to make this out to be this, some kind of like evil plot. <laughs> I haven't really heard. I haven't really heard. I mean, again, I've been I'm pretty much out of touch, but I haven't I haven't heard of that at all. Um, I think a lot of this, I mean, the, the, I think the generous take on this is that it's, this is just maybe realizing that .org doesn't really have to be a separate entity. There's a certain cost that comes along with having a separate entity. I mean, you got to do, again, y'all your own operations and HR and accounting and tax filings and state filings. And, and it's like, you know what, this, now that we've, now that we've, Salesforce is mature enough to have all, all these industry verticals, which are actually, unlike the first one or two times they tried to do verticals, they actually it's kind of stuck this time. Yeah, they, they well, it's put, working this time. It's working. They actually, I mean, someone's being measured by this, and someone got it. You know, people got the right budgets to actually do these things in a real yeah. way. Um, I think I think it's reasonable to think that well, this this really should from just from an efficiency perspective. Like Salesforce may be thinking, hey, we can actually do more for these constituents if we bring org.org org into Salesforce. So they can get take advantage of, you know, all the efficiencies and things that the mothership has, um, and and be a ver- and just and we can treat it as a vertical. Yeah. Well, I yeah, and it, when when I talk about the kind of conspiracy theories, there is a certain amount of perception out there that there's a growing. I'm gonna, I'm not going to say growing. I've read that there's a growing. I've been reading a few things that say there's a growing kind of backlash against corporate philanthropy, and I'm using quote unquote philanthropy that these corporate entities that are, that have such a big push and advertise so heavily on their their giving aspect of it that are part of their company that that is starting to kind of seem more nefarious, like an, another way of data collection, another way of marketing, another way of just tr- trying to get bits of information that they can connect with other bits of information to create a more complete picture for marketing. Um, and yep. that's, that's and, you, and you get a lot of earned what's called earned media out of right. philanthropy, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, and I, I, I don't know. I really don't think this is that. I don't, I don't think I don't think Salesforce was like 
desperate enough to need to like, oh my God, we got to eat our own young now. I don't, right. I don't think that's what this is. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think Salesforce is probably doing okay. Let's see. Uh, one of the, oh, here we go. Of all the explanations that Salesforce failed to give Monday about this acquisition, the most perplexing one was the reason behind it. Salesforce has long been focused on philanthropy thanks to founder and co-chief executive Mark Benioff, a major philanthropist on his own. But Benioff was completely absent from the conference call, and there was no statement from him in the original announcement Monday. Right. Hours, yeah. Hours after the deal was, I mean, again, this is, it's not necessarily, it's, I don't think it, I don't necessarily think it's negative, but it's not just, it's not some positive thing that you'd have the CEO on the call to. Um, uh, Co-CEO. Yeah, co-CEO, I know, sorry. But still, I mean, this is this seems like something that would be right up his alley to be a part of. You know, he could have joined it simply to uh, to assuage people's concerns. concerns. Yeah. yeah, it might have helped actually. <laughs> so that's my consulting tip. I'm available for a modest fee, Salesforce. I will. I can give you um, executive coaching. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure my phone's going to ring as soon as we get off the podcast here with with <laughs> with offers. <laughs> So hours after the deal was announced Monday, Benioff's typical active Twitter feed was oddly silent about the swallowing of one of its pet projects by his original creation. The company did not say why Benioff was absent from the call. Don't, don't, don't. Oh, hang on. I have something for that. I don't have to make that noise. I can actually play it because I have a computer. You forget sometimes you have a soundboard. I know. I don't have a soundboard. I have Finder with the cert in search mode. It's so ghetto. <laughs> That's all I have to say. Enter that now. Yeah. <laughs> Short show. <laughs> anyway, so that's that's probably the biggest news. We have the um, the map anything acquisition, which is right. interesting. Uh, that was really interesting to a lot of um, Salesforce customers more than more so than I thought. That kind of I didn't see that coming. I mean, I didn't I didn't see the interest around it coming. I do. Well, I guess because I'm, I do, a, I work with a company that does a lot with field service lightning. And so I can see how that. Is that, does map anything have like, is it, does field service lightning have some kind of integration or do they, does it use map know. anything a lot? Okay. No, but I've seen some of the features of map anything and I'm like, Ooh, that would be nice. Cause I mean, the, the field, field service right now is more about planning and creating service appointments and, you know, basically getting people out there and scheduling them. Um, but there's a lot of companies out there that need maps. They need they need kind of that uh, traveling salesman algorithm to to plug into. You Ooh, know? the traveling dra- John dropping the the oh, yeah. software engineering yeah. uh, <laughs> things here. <laughs> <laughs> the traveling salesman problem, yeah. uh, said to be almost unsolvable. Although I gotta think UPS and everyone else is making a good shot at it. I think I think their algorithms are they they short circuit it. They they come up with something that's good enough. Yeah, may not be perfect. It may not be the most optimal one, but finding the most optimal one would take an f- f- typically or not typically theoretically a an infinite amount of time. And there's some massive supercomputer out there that's just running algorithms for for the traveling salesman. I don't think so because I mean, like, you know, well, the Amazon like in their R and D department just has some server that's just churning away. It's like. Like they can hook, they can cook hot dogs off of the heat that's coming off of it. And I think people have diverted all those resources to mining bitcoins. So, yeah, it's true. <laughs> There's more money in it. <laughs> Not anymore, I thought. But, I mean, they do get more expensive all the time, right? Yeah. Um, I'm just mad at them because they take all the good video cards. <laughs> yeah, because they're. I guess the GPUs are right. Yeah. The GPUs on them. Yeah, they're driving up that market. I know, making the video cards expensive. I know. Get all supply and demand at work there, huh? 
damn it. <laughs> just want to build a cheap gaming computer. Now I can't because my wife spent all my money on a house. <laughs> oh, I shouldn't have said that. She's going to hear this. Uh, she, <laughs> she doesn't listen. Yes, she does. <laughs> she says it's the only time she can hear me really talk. Now, here's the question. <laughs> Should we rewind and check? Did you say all my money or all our money? I probably said. Oh, see, now you're in trouble. <laughs> should we? Should I, should I put a marker? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Maybe okay, we just in case. <laughs> just in case. <clears throat> just in case. We'll go back and listen, and if it's incriminating, we'll uh, get rid of it. So TechCrunch says that this does not come as a surprise. If anything, products have been available through Salesforce for a long time, and the ten-year-old startup has been named both a Salesforce SI partner and an ISV Premier partner. Um. I've never, yeah, I don't think I've ever used Map anything. I do know that I believe we have some uh, some members of the Good Day Sir Army that work or used to work for Map anything. We'll name any names because, yeah, I mean, from what I saw, the feature set is pretty much basically if you've got an address or a geocode or anything, you can map plot them on a map and have at it. Yep. There's some there's some other features in terms of you know just proximity of clients and things like that. Mm-hmm. You know. The, the typical, I'm going to be in this area. Who's around? Who can I, who can I ping while I'm in the area? Type situation. Yep. Well, John, I've been doing some uh, Salesforce DX. I decided to give that a shot again, mainly because I have a good use case for it. I'm helping a an ISV. Um, I've been helping this is the same ISV I've been helping working with for a few months now, but really at the point that it makes sense to look at just a lot of the processes. So, you know, development processes. Don't um, say processes. Processes. I'm not Canadian or I, European, so I say process. Pro, or no, is it pro, process, processes? Oh, that's equally as horrible. <laughs> I don't like saying processes, but I got, half of the world, I got into John. a habit of it. Saying processes? Mm-hmm. Sounds like a, some kind of disease. I don't know. Yeah, processitis. I used to say matrix sisses. <laughs> that, that does you not make you sound you know smart. Who corrected me on that? <laughs> Mrs. Ross. Oh, really? <laughs> I think I was doing some some 2D scaling and I was trying to do some well, you remember what I used to do. I used to do the dashboard for the in whip progress of things, and I was kind of messing around with that. And I needed I needed to create some oh, so this like 15 years ago? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I was trying to do some 2D drawing, but I needed it to scale and I was trying to get in back into the math of it, and I needed some matrix calculations and or algorithms that, that needed relied on some matrix matrices. Remember, I was talking to her about the problems I was having, and I kept saying matrices, which is like it's matrices. Mm, yeah, <laughs> it's like octopus and octopi. Yeah. You know, it's a little different. Anyway, what was I saying? What was I talking about. Oh, that was my plan to derail you. you did. So oh, DX. <clears throat> no, but they, I mean, uh, yeah. There's there's just a lot of there's been a lot of improvements and changes, and not the things we're kind of being done right in the first place. They weren't, actually. Um, but actually, DX offers some things that are of significant benefit to this company. The biggest one is, I've talked about this before on the show, but, you know, they're a, they, have a, they have actually several managed packages, right? And managed packages have namespaces. And the way the development process is... Namespace. Namespace I. <laughs> uh, and so the and I guess the way the development process works is um, in a lot of the code they actually have these little placeholders for the namespace, whether it's Apex classes or 
SQL queries and sometimes even in Lightning components. And like that's they have all like that's that's the the source code has all those. Now, when you want to check out the source code and do some work, one of the first things you have to do is well, you need your own developer set. You know, your own, you know, like a developer org, right? Okay, <clears throat> so you create a developer org, and you create you got a whatever it's called, create or package manager, whatever it is, and you you need to create your own package because you need a namespace for your developer org because you're going to do a essentially a find and replace on the entire code base with that whole temp that that little uh, you know the the what do you call it the holder no um, placeholder the placeholder okay oh, wow words one beer and words become difficult for me um, you have to replace that placeholder and then throughout all the code with your developer orgs package name that you or package namespace that you picked seems wrong well how would you how would you solve that it would it would shouldn't be a problem <laughs> That's what I'm oh, okay. Yeah. I agree with you on that. Shouldn't be a problem. Um, and then, so there's all these scripts, and unfortunately, they're all they all requires a Windows machine. So, you know, from day one that I came on board, I'm like, okay, I eventually I've got to fi- find a solution to this because I cannot run all these. They're um, what do you call them? Batch like win- they're like uh, DOS batch files. <laughs> and I'm like DOS man. I know. <laughs> And so, okay, I can't run these. But, I mean, they really, like, there's a script that um, that if you want to check out from Git to your developer org and it re- replaces the namespace, and then if you want to, like, push from your developer org to an org or back into Git, like, there's all these different scripts that do these things. And that's the only way you can, you know, you got to set up, if you're using an Illuminate Cloud or whatever, you got to set everything up to not, don't, you know, do not deploy on save. You don't do any pushing to anywhere from your IDE or any one-offs. It's yeah, like you, it's like you run one of these scripts that pushes the entire, you know, you make a one change to a Lightning component and you run a script that pushes the entire code base up to your developer org. But that's nothing new. That's nothing new in developing software. It's called a build server. Well, I know. I know. <laughs> Just set up a little, little crappy Windows machine and make it your build server. And so, and, and I will totally say that there's a lot of places where they're using this um, placeholder, namespace placeholder, where they just absolutely don't need to. Um, but there are there are actually legitimate places where you actually have to you do have to use these placeholders, um, and so then that that becomes a problem. Like you and you and I are both both working on this. I have a namespace for my developer org. You've got one for your developer org, and we you know yeah, it's got to have the right namespace. Um, well, DX at some point, I want to say a year or so ago, added this. Uh, one of the features they added was the ability when you spin up a scratch org, you can specify what you want the namespace to be. Now I think it either has to be. A, a a new unique namespace, or it has to be a namespace that you're in your dev hub. Th- mm. it, it, it's attached to your like your company's org, right? right. The dev hub. Um, you can claim a namespace. You can say, "Hey, this is ours." And if it's a, if it's one of those claim namespaces, then all your developers can, when they create their scratch words, can actually you can, you guys can all have the same that same namespace, which is that's the new thing. Can't do that with regular developer orgs. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and it works. I even think Salesforce is, I thought I read somewhere in some, maybe it was a blog post or something where Salesforce or someone who posted on the Salesforce blog was recommending even just companies who's doing any kind of development start creating namespaces for their org rather than relying on the default namespace, which is the default. 
Well, yeah. As a way to kind of modularize your code a little bit more. Okay, so you're, you're crossing a couple streams there. One is namespaces, right? And this, if you're talking about when you do, when you do a, uh, what is it, a, a, a force source pull, I guess? I'm still learning these really lengthy colon-filled commands that SFDX seems to love. Which is bad for me because I barely remember it's like, the help I know, it's command like, and on Plus, it's like, CLIs. hey guys, I'm on a MacBook keyboard here. Don't don't make me type so many colons and like <laughs> different stuff. Like, can we simplify this? Anyway, um, so when you pull your code down, like anything that let's let's say that you you went into Salesforce just through the browser and you created a new custom field or a new co- new custom object. Mm-hmm. Well, the next time you do a, a pull, an SFDX pull, the question is, well, where does that go? Um, because with SFDX, one thing one thing cool about it is you can kind of create fake namespaces. Not really namespaces, but they're just a way to organize your code in the, in the on the file system. <clears throat> sure. Um, so you can like if you you could create like a, let's say you had some code that's just specific to opportunities. You could have under your main package maybe maybe like slash opportunities, and then within that you put your aura components and your classes that are for your opportunity stuff. Right. The question is when when you create stuff in Salesforce and you do SFDX pull and it pulls it down. Where do you want it to put it? I mean, yeah, you've got all your custom directories you've created, slash opportunities, slash whatever, you know, different modules. But SFDX doesn't know where to put that. So by default, where do you want it to put it? And the answer is, well, it's in a folder called default. And you can leave it there and everything's going to work just fine. Mm-hmm. But you can also go ahead and move that into, if you do have folders for, uh, you know, context-specific places to put your code, you can move it into any of those other folders. It's just by default when you do a pull. But from then on out, when you do a push... Or, or, or when you pull those down again, it, they're going to be in the right, you know, it, it knows somehow or another. Not to put that in default again, it goes where it goes. It goes where you moved it. Mm-hmm. That's not a namespace. And no. people, and this is, this is one of those things, I mean, um, the, the, I do feel like the SFDX documentation, it, it took me longer to get up to speed with this than I feel like I should have. Because I wanted to, I'm still trying. Yeah, I wanted. I, I mean, really, the best way to learn is just for someone to sit down. It would take someone. It took me 15 minutes to get you started. But if you if you go through the documentation, it's gonna take you like it's gonna take you much longer than that. Because it's just I don't know. I'm gonna buy like, you a beer and you can get me started. Because uh, I've started well, stopped like 10 times. And maybe some of it's just that my brain doesn't work the same way that other people's brain does, and and I'm just I'm having to forge some new paths, or or I just think differently. So I'm not. I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. And and there's the documentation, but then there's then you actually have to figure out how things actually work. And it's, I don't know. It does feel like a moving target, but it's, it's that's just Salesforce development in general. So we've, well, we're always kind of dealing with a moving yeah, target. Yeah, and, and Salesforce, because it's such a different runtime or platform than what you're used to, because Salesforce. Um, well, I mean, it's, it's different just, in general. There's different concepts, and so things just aren't as natural as they yeah. were, as if it was like some, you know, low, like a Python or, or Java. Or, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, there's just some of that cruft that is just necessary. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, so the, the, that whole thing is different than namespaces. Names, regardless of your, your namespace actually doesn't, I don't think it affects your, your local folder layout, your, your directory structure. Um, because in your, you can really, and, and so second generation packaging changes some of this, and I'm not fully up to speed on it yet. Um, if you're not using second generation packages, then all of your code in an org, if it's namespaced, is under that one namespace. So it doesn't matter where it is in, your, in the directory structure because it's everything has that same namespace. And most of the time, you don't have to anywhere in your code explicitly refer to that namespace. 
So you're saying with second with second generation packages, I can have opportunity in a class called I don't know util, and then I can have account and util. Is it that kind of namespace no, so separation? Second generation packaging is is you can create almost like sub packages, sub namespaces. Well, I mean the whole one of the major advantages of namespaces is I don't have I don't I can have a class name the same thing in different namespaces. And I believe two GP. I'm going to say that because it's easier to say. Um, does accomplish that to some degree. Okay. Yep. Does but it, there, does it change the security model at all in terms of just private access to classes and all those kind of things? I don't. Th- well, I, I think there's some settings and some options around this. But I think um, if you don't want it to, it can it can be just it can basically be you know your your two GP packages that you've created um, are fully accessible or integrated with your like your your primary package or whatever. Obviously, I don't quite know what I'm talking about here, but but based on um, some stuff I've read and some sessions I was in last year at TDX, I, yeah, I think it, there's some options because I think you can release. I could be wrong, but I feel like you can release two GP packages on their own, but you can also release them as a part of your first generation package. Mm-hmm. Got to come up with better names for these guys. The problem is they're mouthful. Pretty sure we've got a couple of. DX stuff coming up for the extra. Yeah, I, by the way, <laughs> I'm sure. And I'm, you know, again, TDX is coming up, so we'll we'll usually they they take that opportunity to announce some some new things or or if nothing else, just educate in a new way or whatever. But yeah, I mean, this has been really beneficial. Actually, um, I've been able to do away with most of these namespace placeholders because they're all over the code and they're nasty. They just look disgusting. That's good. Um, and also, almost all those scripts. I mean, there's a whole infrastructure around not just the scripts, but all this ant garbage and um, all kinds of uh, dude. It's in like there's in the and this is in the source code. It's checked in, like and there's like a under you know whatever. There's there's a whole like section of binaries. It's like you know zip.exe and all these different. I mean .exes checked in that, that, that these scripts use to do all this stuff. And I've just <laughs> basically obsoleted all of that. All of that crap is gone. It's just not necessary. And I had a hunch it was not necessary. I just well, I had I had bigger well, fires. It's not necessary to, today, to but maybe at the time it was written, it was just, it was elegant. It was elegant engineering. It, well, it was necessary before you had scratch orgs that supported namespaces. It was necessary. Uh, not as necessary. It, the problem was these property, these not property placeholders. That's a spring thing. These namespace placeholders were way overused, used in so many places they didn't actually need to be used. But people just use them because it didn't hurt to use them. Like Salesforce will accept the namespace if you really want to use the namespace before your class or before uh, in a SQL query before you know in front of a, a custom object. Or custom, it'll accept it. It's just mm-hmm. completely not necessary though because that, by default it's going to prefix it anyway when you. Package when you when you produce a package, so just there's a lot of just there's I mean it is confusing. It's actually really confusing. So it doesn't surprise me when you look through these code bases and this is I've seen many of these from different ISVs that you see a lot of this stuff. Yeah. But yeah, I mean it's one of those things that I think you know DX is it's it's slowly improving on. It's it's better than what it used to be. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's something I I really want to get into. It's just kind of hard right now. With um, the type of project work I'm on, I'm not really doing ISV stuff. I'm not really doing packaged stuff. 
So it's really hard to kind of justify saying we're going to do DX on this project and try to propagate that with everyone. ISV is still the by far the big impetus, right? The 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 big use case for DX. Yeah. Um, I mean, right now I'm just I'm still trying to coordinate heavy. I don't know how to say this. <laughs> I'm battle. There's a battle coming. There, there's this clash, this world yeah, of colliding yeah, with you know it's coming with, with flows and process builder and code because it's Ooh. there's there's it's it's getting worse. I mean, we're it's getting to the point where where the technical architect role is almost a little slightly on the edge of obsolescence because so much automation is being done. That is that is such a misunderstanding. That's I know such a so false, much automation is just just automatically being done in process builder and flows. A lot of headless flows, and there's just errors being thrown everywhere because there's no null checking. There's none of that, and so it's just I, I, and there's so much hard coding. I have I have to turn off process processes processes in order to deploy my code because there's hard coded stuff in there and I don't have the budget to fix it. I don't know what to do. So it's it's yeah. it's an interesting time yeah. right now because there there's there's a yeah. lot more automation being done in those tools, which which is fine, but it's a different mindset. It's, is it fine though? It's is it fine? It's great that the tool exists. It's great that that that, that option is there. But you still have to know how to do automation. You still have to know how to do it properly. Yeah. And so so many people think, just like, what they're I would, treating I, it like I, workflows, where they would go and copy some formula somewhere, yeah. or copy some some steps from some blog somewhere and put it in, and it would just be fine because Salesforce would gracefully kind of fail on nulls and things the, like the that. The way I've I've said this, I feel like it's a pretty good metaphor, but you know, or maybe I don't know. I don't even know it's a metaphor, but. You're, I will. In some cases, I will agree with you. It's, like, it's actually cool that you know we have workflow and we have these draggy, droppy things. You can get a lot of amazing stuff done. I'm not even. I'm not being sarcastic about that without requiring any code, right? That's nice. the default. That's nice. That's nice. And it's the default. Okay? I mean, it's the default but on here's solution the, design. Here's here is the problem is the, is the cliff, okay? And you have to know. When you've crossed the the line, you want to know where that cliff is. I've, I've called it the line. It's worse than uh, that. And here's the thing: where, when you when you realize, oh crap, we've crossed this line. Like we're building our business out on this, and we've got all this logic that's not in nice code libraries that are unit testable and are reusable and composable and extendable and are well thought out. Of course, yes, I'm assuming you have good you would have good software engineers. You have that's part of the code. People yeah. create garbage code too all the time. Most that's of it true. is garbage. Most of it's garbage. I will I admit. I agree. Okay. But if you were, you know, if you if you did have good software engineers, you could have done this right in a way that can take you way further than the draggy droppy tools can take you. Right. But a lot of people don't know that. You usually don't know that. And they don't see that cliff until they, just like the, you know, the road runner or whatever, that runs right up to it and it's like, and then like puts on the brakes, right? <laughs> Tries to stop for, you know. But then you're standing to the cliff and you're like, oh crap, well, I mean, where do we, where do we go? We have to go forward. This is our business. Like, we've got to get these things done. But everything we built is falling down on its knees now because it's not reusable. It's hard to test. It's, it's not extractable. And I mean, just there's like so many things. It's just, it's just not... When you're when you get to the point where you're like, okay, we actually need like, you know, significant software engineering here. Um, yeah. We're building this big system, and we've done it by dragging circles and squares around. And 
it just at some point doesn't cut it because you just don't have access. You don't have the level of access you do with code right. to do things. It's not expressive enough. And so the, here, there's two problems with this. One, knowing, because sometimes that you don't see the cliff and you just walk right, up, right off of it. And of course, you know how the cartoon works. Wiley Cutter, right? you, you, can, you can go pretty far before you start to mm-hmm. fall, right? You know? And so you're out there. Yeah. You're out there and you don't know you're out there. Okay, that's one problem. And the second problem is once if, let's say you do, or you realize you're out there, or you realize you've come on this cliff, but you didn't see it coming. So you've invested all of this, all this re- these resources in this one way of doing things. And you realize it's, that's got to be, that is a sunk cost now. This yeah. is like the sunk cost fallacy. Yep. And then what do you do? Do you replace and it all? Or do what you, do you do and do you how do you do it? it? And how do you do it? And would it, been, would it have been less expensive to do it right the first time? Only if and, you knew, and only it, if you knew you were going to hit and that And would it have been more agile and responsive to your business had you done it right the first time? Yeah, exactly. And you have to know. That's, and how do you predict that? How do you know? You I, I face this problem with small organizations all the time. It's like, how do we, what's the right way to do this for you guys? Because yeah. they don't know. They're looking to me. To, they're looking to us to know how, what the right. Yeah, they're just, they don't even know what to ask. I mean, they're just, you know, they're just trusting us to do the right thing. And sometimes it's, yeah. the problem is you're, you, you know, you're talk, sitting around the table trying to figure out what, what's the right way to go forward with this, with the solution, with this organization. And it's, it's there's, not an, there's not a right, there's not an easy answer. Maybe nope. a right answer, I don't know. There's not an easy answer. And I'm a software engineer, so, you know, don't expect me not to be a software engineer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I always make the joke that a surgeon likes to cut. And I'm like, if you I'm, want me to work I'm on a, it, I'm a programmer. If you want me to work program. on it or deploy it or support anything else, there better not be there better not be flows in it. Or yeah, no, which is what process builders want. Because the, first of all, they're just a pain in the ass to deploy. Like you can't, you just it's garbage from a deployment perspective. Yeah, it is kind of cumbersome. I, I yeah, a, I mean, I have I a just, related quiz for you, John, that I'd already pre-prepared. Did you know that's the term, pre-prepared? On this topic? <laughs> yes. Wow. But I didn't realize this topic was even coming. Here's a quiz for you. It's a rant from what I've been dealing with. There's a new, and I know this because I waited to the last day to renew one of my certifications or whatever they're called. Um, renewal? It's empty, by the way. Yeah, well, okay. Well, let's, let's, let's pause for the cause of we have empty glasses. We can either go with, <laughs> I've had this for a while. This is not one of the new ones. This is one of the ones that's been around for a couple of years. Uh, the Game of Thrones, v- Valar Margulis. You don't even know what that means. I, have, watch I show. have successfully not watched a single episode of that, and now that it's over or about to be over, I don't have to think about it. This, this is by Oma Gang Brewery, which uh, opened Cooper, Cooperstown, but very much a um, Belgian, uh, very I, Belgian. I this, is, Belgian. This, is, this is a double or double or however you want to call it, Dubel, double Belgian, Something Belgian like double. Or we can go with local. Um, Collective Brewing Project. They pretty much, it's 100% sours and funky bears. This is Petite Golden Sour with Blackberry. Ooh, it's a tough choice. Because I love Belgians. That sour sounds good, too. We got a pick, John. Dead air. Do, 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 do. That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to vamp. I, don't, I'm not, I want you to pick one. I don't want to vamp. Uh, let's pick the sour. Okay. I thought you were going there. Since you got the keys out. Yep. Okay, so here's, here's the question. Um, well, I mean, I have to, I have to give, I have to set the basis first here. Salesforce recently added a feature where when you deploy, I guess it's not a feature, 
But when you deploy flows, mm-hmm. you can actually deploy them as active. Can you? Yes, you can now. How? As of winter 19. It's just part of the metadata. Active? If it was true. active when you deployed it, it'll be active? Let's say you Because right now you deploy it and it's inactive and you have to go to that version and activate it. Yeah, and that's, that's what's changed. Now you can deploy it as active as a part of the deployment. Gross. That's not gross. <laughs> no, you need to. You need to be able to do that. Uh, okay. Now the question is, how... Well, let me back up. So when you deploy... And one of these active processes or flows. Mm-hmm. What is the? Uh, how does that affect test coverage? What are the test coverage requirements here? Do you have to test those? You don't have to test them. You don't have to test them. But if you if it's inactive when it deploys, which is why I tend to separate workflow from my code deployments. Yeah, my code. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my deployments. My deployments from my code. I, I need to make a shirt that says my code, don't I? <laughs> you do. Um, Nobody take that, by the way. I'm taking that one. Coming soon, a good day, sir, my code shirt. Um, it's for that reason, because I have to deploy it, activate it, so that anything that my code is, that the code is dependent on when, when the unit tests run will validate. Uh, I, I, I prefer not to rely on those type of automations for my code, for unit tests to pass, but sometimes I just, I can't. It, it has to be that way. Are right, you ready, John? Yeah. You ready? What is that for? This is weird. So obviously, there's, you, can, you don't have code coverage because there's no code in Flow, right? But 75% of the number of active processes have to be at least invoked. So if you have 10 processes, then 7.5 round up to 8. 8 have to actually be invoked by your unit tests. Really? Yep. I wasn't even trying to answer your question. I was just talking about what I deal with. Yeah. But I I would have failed yeah, that. I, I learned that new gem today via Trailhead, John. Yeah, I got to do that too. I'm behind. I'm turning into a dinosaur. I'm gonna watch. Um, Matt Go Morris's, get your badges. I'm gonna watch Matt Morris's a uh, CTA thing. Oh man, that looks pretty interesting. Every time I see someone doing that, I'm like, wow, that's I I have to give props to people who are willing to put that much work. I called it the it's the PhD of Salesforce. I debate it all the time. No, I don't. It's not, it's not even interesting to me. I don't have that much time. I can't do it. Yeah. Yeah, but I won't get into that. Okay. <laughs> I'll get myself in trouble. Oh. All right, uh, John, I believe we have a, a uh, community input holdover. Oh, I wasn't ready for that. From last week. You asked for it. I know, but I wasn't ready. <laughs> That's sour. It is called Petite Golden Sour. Not to be, which does rhyme with something that don't even go there. <laughs> which is, I was focused on the petite part, but okay. <laughs> yeah, that's actually, that's a good point. Um, PSA, today, if you're listening right now, is the last day to maintain your, I guess your winter 19. It's the, it's the, it's the I, do or die date. <laughs> I, had, I had to reiterate with the, our, uh, I don't know. I don't know what the role is, but the person that manages our cert- certifications for the company, I had to kind of say, "I don't have any." Sorry, <laughs> I let them expire. It's funny as a part of the. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know why, but I was kind of trying to finish all this MVP sign up stuff, mm-hmm. and one of the things you have to do is like, oh, it's a survey kind of. You have to f- fill out they, and it's they want to know like your your trailhead link and your. Salesforce yeah. stack exchange link and all these things. I'm like, 
I got nothing. I mean, I have links, but they're like they're not <laughs> not no, impressive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Don't look at them. I think that's that's a common misconception. It's like you get the the MVP, which by the way, MVP MVP as a title is antiquated. You know what they should do, Salesforce? If you're listening, change the program to influencer. We got we got Instagram influencers. Is that what they we are? should be? Oh. We should be Salesforce influencers, thought leaders. Yeah. Oh, oh, that makes me. It kind of comes comes up a little bit in my esophagus. Yeah, we got to up the the cringe game here. We got to be influencers. <laughs> and Brett is killing it on the titles. He's uh, quite lonely in there, though. I think there's only yeah, three online. Okay, can we get to our community topic from last week that did not get? We didn't get to. One question is not a quiz, by the way. Sure it is. Just because I didn't play the music. That's a pass fail quiz, man. <laughs> it is. It's a do or die. <laughs> All right, John. Let's get to our community topic. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I didn't know you were queuing me up for that. I've only asked you about four times in the past minute. I uh, can't use the name, so this is going to be anonymous. <clears throat> this person says, I work as a BA consultant, and I continue to run into the same problem on my current project, but not sure if it's some- just something I'm doing wrong or if it's something others face. Uh, to write a, to write a good AC, which I'm going to take as acceptance criteria, I should assume the solution. If I, sp- mm. I shouldn't. I'm sorry. Shouldn't. <laughs> to write a good AC, I shouldn't assume the solution. And I will tell you, as a BA, this person is thinking along the right lines already. I like this. <laughs> if I spell out exactly how to do the work in the AC, it would box in the developers and admins and not allow them to come up with a better solution or stay flexible if there are technical challenges. I will say that that happens anyways because when sales has to estimate the deal, they do that anyways. Yep. So we never have hours to do what we really want to do or need to do. Because uh, your salesperson designed the solution. Yes. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> well, not only not only our salesperson, but Salesforce's salespeople, because they do these little demos. Which become promises like And they don't they don't uh, tell them, oh, this part's custom. This or, little thing, this little widget I put over here, that's a custom widget that or, doesn't really do anything. Or either it's all smoke and mirrors. It's just it shows you what it's a it's a prototype. It's a it's a yeah. It's a little stage play of what how things might look yeah. if you actually implemented such a system. Yeah, and I've had clients go, well, what about that one thing? Yeah, that, that they was done. Us? No, it was, it was, we thought it was done already. It continues, however, I find every time that a trigger ends up needing to get created during testing, we typically find a host of things that don't update properly since it wasn't spelled exactly which fields updating needs to fire the trigger in the, in the acceptance criteria. Uh, as experienced developers... How specific do you prefer your AC to be in order to toe the line between boxing you in and not giving enough information? That's yeah, the this question. This reminds me of like, you know, I start a new or I, I start a new contract with a company and I go in and they've got some software product they want to build or something. And I sit down and uh, you know, I'm getting started. Maybe I'm in their office for the first week or something like that. And um, you know, they give me this uh, big requirements document. Okay, fine. Or maybe they're even, maybe they're modern and it's, I get like a board with user stories or I've been a backlog. No, oh, nice. Regardless. With a backlog. Uh, yeah. Whoa. Regardless, I, I start, dream. you know, I, I go to, I go look at the first requirement or pull the first, you know, ticket off the board and it says, user clicks a button called blah, 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 and a pop-up opens, which has this blah, blah, blah with this text box. I'm like, <laughs> and that's when I'm just like, Slowly Crap. close the lid on my laptop. 
<laughs> put it in my bag, put my backpack on, and I slowly walk out the door. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's kind of tough. This is the the line between the business requirements and the design of the thing. And how religious do you get about keeping, you know, that firewall between those two things? Right. Because user stories can get, while I, I think conceptually and psychological, I don't know why. Maybe it's because of the name of them, user stories. Stories. Everyone loves stories, right? Everyone understands stories. So for whatever reason, it's actually easier to work with clients when you talk about stories because they can think of stories. They can think of what a user story, you know, what users might need to be able to do. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one reason why user stories have been so successful, even though there's so many different ways to do them. But, you know, when you look at a lot of these user stories, they, they are quite prescriptive. I mean, they are, there's a lot of, in a lot of cases, there's a lot of design in them. Mm-hmm. Because the user story might say, user clicks on this button and gets this pop-up, and then when they're done, a new case is created. And it's like, Okay, well you got kind of you got a little bit of it right, but you get a lot of this wrong. Like you have to leave room for your talented people to design the solution. Right. Right? I mean, and and you can't it didn't we all agree that you can't fully design, you can't bake a design way before you even start the project. But if all your stories and your epics and everything, if they've all got this these design elements baked into them. Well, first of all, you might say, "Oh, don't worry about that. We just we did that to help us think through it. You guys don't have to. You don't have to necessarily stick to that." Well, first of all, people feel like they kind of do have to stick to it because that's what you're expecting. But also, you've just biased their thought process, their own design process. You've already put this image in their head that they can't get out of their head. Right. Right. And I hate that bias. It's like I, because you're trying to meet expectations. So well, there's there's been this expectation that there's going to be a button on the screen that they can click. And even then, I can't get it out of my head that there's a button on the screen they have to click. Like, maybe there would have been a way better way to do it or something. Right. But I, I, I've got this, someone biased my brain with this thing I can't get out of my head. It's like a song that won't get out of your head. You can't, you know, when you have a song stuck in your head and you're like, oh, I'm going to sing this other song. Just and you can't even think of the other song right. because the one is playing in your head still. Why is that I can learn the lyrics to songs I don't like faster than I can to the songs I like? Because you, because you don't like the music, so you pay attention to the lyrics when you hear it. Oh, Maybe. Anyway, back to the question. I mean, I think you have to, this is not perfect, but you do have to try to, when you're, when you're putting together the project and and you're talking about the scope and, you know, you're trying to put together a contract that, you know, the customer is going to agree on with you. You really do need to try to keep it to, um, to business goals, business outcomes. Right. I think so. Um, but it's really easy and there's, there's a lot of desire for the subsequent ceremonies that happen after the fact to have a little more detail in there so that you can kind of groom things and, and distribute things yeah. and put them in the proper buckets for sprints and things like that. So there's there's this kind of like yin and yang concept of happening where it's too generic, which means we can't plan for it. Well, exactly. Because, because the problem is if you haven't designed the system yet, then you certainly can't put together a contract that specifies how much it's going to cost to build such a system that you haven't designed yet. Right. If you don't haven't designed it, meaning you don't know how it's going to be built, then how could you possibly say how much that's going to cost? How can you agree on that? Well, people do it all the time. I see it every day. People agree on stuff. I'm talking six, seven figure projects. People agree on stuff that they have no idea what the hell they're talking about. I see it all the time. 
And really, what I prefer is let's agree that we we don't know. That's still scary because there's still a budget somewhere that's why that has to. Has there to is be. no, there is. It, it's not to say that you don't budget and that you don't plan. It's just that you build in some dynamics into your plan into your budget. Because I can sure, I mean, I can give you a big fancy contract with some fancy design, a bunch of UML. Ooh, gotta love the UML, right? Lots of different you know, UML diagrams. Mm-hmm. And I'll say this is going to be this is going to be a two and a half million project uh, dollar project. It's going to take us eighteen months. And maybe you'll sign it and you'll write us a check for it. But that is, we've just completely lied to ourselves. So, so to try to answer the question in some fashion, I mean, what would be a good user story to you that would kind of balance know. between the two? I mean, I, again, I think it's just try to keep the design out of the stories. Try to keep the stories focused on the user's outcome, the business outcome. What do you want the users to be able to accomplish? Not how they're going to accomplish it. Don't talk about buttons and dialogues and things. Just talk about what the user is going to, what they need to get done. Yeah. As a blah, blah, blah type of user, I can do this. Not what I'm going to do. And I, think I mean, same, not how I'm going to do it. I like, think the same applies to whatever actor you're referring to, whether it's the user or the system or anything else, is try to focus on the feature, the action, the verb, and less about the tangible aspects of it, I guess. Right. Again, it's try to focus on the outcome, the business outcome, the value outcome right. that you want out of that. And there's uh, challenges with that too. There's, there's no perfect process, right? I mean, you're... you're and this, this, this kind of dovetails into the principle of um, making decisions at the latest responsible moment. And again, you either buy into the stuff or you don't. I mean, I'm, and I don't, people who are, you know, pre the year 2000 on their philosophy on software build, I just don't do, I can't do business with you. I'd, uh, I'm, not the, I'm not the right person for you. But if you know that, you know, if you understand this and you know you want to minimize and mitigate your risk, before you commit to spending the whole budget and blowing it and not saying that you completely failed until the end, then I'm not your guy. I'm just not. You don't like making money, do you? <laughs> I, like, I like providing value and getting compensated for that value. I don't like it when I get paid and I don't deliver value. Well said. All right, so he goes on to say, a recent example, if it helps... There's a field that shows the gap between a value and a target value. The story explained why the salespeople needed to track this, and AC was written to specify the formula that should be used to calculate a few conditions in the decimal places for the percentage. Mm. Which layout it should be added to, and which profiles and permission sets should have visibility. As a BA, I think that was pretty thorough, and the formula would imply that if the target number of or other value update, that the field should probably update. But alas, here we are testing, and it doesn't update when the target value changes. Uh, I like every. <laughs> I feel like every time I write a story that ends up being a trigger, it runs into similar problems where unless each field that must fire the trigger is called out, it gets missed. If it's a simple formula field, my stories go off without a hitch. Also, I know that in the above case, that normally would be a formula field, but because of chaining formula fields, it maxes out the formula compilers, character limits, yep. and the objects so high traffic. The architecture doesn't want us to use PB or workflow. Peanut butter, by the way. Yep. <laughs> so I can't blame them there for writing unnecessary triggers. In regards to writing the triggers, am I working with bad devs or am I a bad BA? I don't know that I can answer that. I, 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 I have a thought on this, and okay. that, that comes down to 
The reason the formula tends to work for them is because the execution for that trigger is defined declaratively, which means if something changes within the trigger mechanism or something's left out, it's very easy to change because it's declarative. I think that's where that's where the bridge between, say, process builder and flows and code needs to be, is that for the execution, the business logic that says when A plus B happens, execute this logic, that's where the two can marry. I'm so lost. I'm so lost. I don't know if it's too abstract or what. I have no, I literally have no idea what you're talking about. So let's say you a have an declarative trigger. I'm just you lost me there, and then I got a lot more lost as you went on. Well, so right now we 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 pick the all or none option. When we when we talk about automation in the system, we it's it's usually an all or none. It's like we either do it all in flow, or we do it all in process builder, or we do it all in code, and there's no in between. There's no collaboration between those two tools. What I'm saying is that as architects, we should be finding more ways to collaborate between those two tools. We should be saying that, okay, we're going to define... That means you have an honest conversation about what the strengths and weaknesses of these tools are. It, it does. Yep. But, it, but, but let's say we have some logic that calculates some value. But that v- calculation only has to happen when the account is... The, the type is industry and the record type is, I don't know, uh, vendor. Okay. So rather than put the, the, cri- the criteria of that in your trigger, meaning whenever you see an account with a industry of X and a... Uh, record type of vendor run this logic, you put that in the process builder and you make your code an invocable method, which means your logic gets executed. It doesn't care how it gets executed or what criteria executed it, it just executes. But your process builder has the execution criteria, and which means that when that changes, you just change it. Yeah, and I'm personally, I'd much rather, there's places I would put that, um, that kind of gating logic other than a process builder. I I'd totally agree. If that's something, because part of, Making good software is figuring out what's going to change and what's not going to change and how things are going to change. Sure. And by the way, you got to be real careful on premature, like over designing, right? Yeah. Because you really don't know. You don't. You think you know up front and everyone thinks they know, but they don't know. It, um, it, but, but once you do know, like, okay, oh crap, you know, this needs to be a, we need to be able to change this thing or this needs to be a setting. Okay, fine. We have ways to do that. Um, si- simply because, again, the deployability aspect. If they would just fix that on on flows and process builder, that would really I mean that would seventy five seventy five percent of my complaint about those goes away. Yeah, I mean in terms of your usage. Because of that, I like the I, of, I like the idea of an admin being able to go into and, and change like a process builder that to to update logic and things like that. I like that. I just can't deploy it worth a crap. That's my problem with it. It <laughs> it, it throws a wrench in every Deployment process, whether it's setting up a new dev org or, or, or merging or merging dev orgs together and, and branch changes and getting things in a sandbox and then in production. It, it, it throws wrench in all that. That's like my biggest problem. Yeah. I, I, I just, I'm not so sure that it's, it's fair to say it, it's, a, it's a problem that's easily solved by a good developer versus a bad developer because it's such a variable. It doesn't matter whether your, your, your gate, to use your word, is a process builder that executes that logic, or if it's some configuration in a metadata object or a custom setting that, that does that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's time and money. Because to try to make your logic more declarative and, and expressive to a point where it has a chance of, of surviving whatever changes come in the future is very expensive. You have to really do a lot in your code and do a lot of validation and a lot of extra work to, to allow that to happen. So, so you end up blowing the budget on that. 
Now, process builder might be nice because it's a little bit more expressive in terms of what it can evaluate and the things it can do. So you gain a little bit more there. There, but I, it's still it's it's not it's not a black and white thing to me. It's not like a bad developer would have done it this way and a good developer would have done it this way. Sometimes there's other factors like money, budget, time, all those kind of things. You just juxtaposed two really interesting and opposing concepts. Did I? <laughs> Declarativeness <laughs> and expressiveness. Yeah. They are at odds. They are. They are opposite ends of a spectrum. And depending on where you want to be on that spectrum, you know, you're going you're gonna to favor one over the other. But the more you favor one, the more you lose the other. You want more declarative, you're going to be less expressive. Yeah. That's true. I mean, uh, I, I mean, the the beauty of the expressiveness of a good programming language is unbeatable. It is an ultimate documentation of the system of what's happening. You know, it it says what it does and does what it says. Um, only know. if you have comments, though. No, without only, comments. Only no comments. comments. No comments, please. <laughs> um, but yeah, that 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 is a spectrum. You have declarativeness on one side, expressiveness on the other. Yeah. I mean, you can just you can just express things in code that you can't even come close to with the declarative tools. But you can have the the simplicity of just declaring what you want done and having the system do that that you don't get with an expressive programming language. It's imperative versus declarative. Right. And that, that's tough to balance. That's tough to, to discover at the beginning of a project with a few stories to know that that's what you're going to need. That you're yeah. going to need something expressive or you're going to need something declarative or you just need to, to hard code it because you, it's, it's a quick and easy. Right. Right, and there's exactly. I mean, there's also. I mean, there's there's no. I mean, I could spend ten hours building this trigger and make it really declarative or make it really expressive, or I can spend an hour and just make it do this one right. thing. And if that gets you down the road for a year, I mean, the time you know, time value, money, burn the hand, burn the bush, all that stuff. It's all those things apply. Yeah. Sometimes the simple, you know, the, again, another one of the agile principles: the simplest thing that could possibly work. Do that first. Yeah, and in but terms the, of but it, but it truly has to work. The simplest thing that could <laughs> possibly work. Try that. Yeah, not something that is actually not going to work. <laughs> well, that that's tough to quantify as well because you might have actually built what, no, what, what they said they needed. It is tough to quantify. This, these things are difficult. I mean, they and the only reason I'm even halfway good at any of this stuff is because I've done it wrong so many times. You know, you well, learn. That's the next point. And I you learn make. from people that are smarter than you are. It's a, and that's the point I want to make. It's not. A, it's not a matter of of a bad dev versus a good dev. It's it's a matter of a experienced developer versus a less experienced developer. Yep. And because I've yeah. certainly made all these mistakes. Oh, sure. I've certainly. Absolutely. I'm still making these mistakes. I'm yeah. still going back to code, going, oh, "Crap! Why did I do well, that?" Well, that's because you're a bad dev. Well, I am. My code <laughs> sucks, but <laughs> my code. <laughs> I'm, I'm always embarrassed by my code. Yeah, hundred percent embarrassed. I, right. So I, I, I certainly can't answer whether that this person has a good dev or a bad dev. I, I do think there are people who just are, are green, and they are the type of you know they have the right stuff right to to grow into a good senior engineer, architect, all these things. And then there's people that just you know you'll see someone that's like, oh, I've got twenty years experience in this and fifteen in that and everything, and they just they're still just not good. They just didn't learn. They didn't, they weren't thinking the right way or maybe they didn't work for the right people or they didn't get taught right, but they just, they are not made from the right stuff. 
I didn't have the right kind of curiosity, you know, or I, I don't know. I don't even know how to describe it, but I have to look out for that stuff all the time nowadays. Yeah. Well, I hope that helped. Thank you for the submission. Yeah, I'm not sure that helped at all, but <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, the problem is it's a really complex and squishy topic. It is. It's so subjective. It, it's funny because I, I, I used to have a hard, not a, I guess a hard line. I used, I used to think there was good and bad developers, but the more I tried to, the more I empathized both with my own code and with other people's code, there's, there's a factor of time, that fourth dimension. You know, the way we used to write code you know, five years ago is way different than we write code now just because the limits have changed and the features have changed and we have more options or even less options. And so we're, we're changing the way we do things, but also just how we've learned to do things on the platform itself and the features that's the, that are involved there. I'm trying to be really generic. Hmm. Try not to be specific. You did a very good job of that. I did. Yeah. Awesome. Well, John, let me check my topic bag here and see if there's anything else I really wanted to cover. Mm, nope. I had one. Okay. Do you know that uh, I, I read this article that says that uh, San Francisco is having brownouts? Is that is this a poop reference? <laughs> I was I was trying to figure out what you would think because when when I hear brownouts, I think rolling power outages. Yeah. And not, uh, not it's not even that. Brownouts are brownouts are different. Brownouts are when no one really fully loses power. Um, it's not a rolling in, declared intentional outage. Yeah, rolling out. It's just like when like the, the the voltage either gets real flaky or like drops from what it's supposed to be to like ninety or eighty or seventy percent of what it's supposed to be because of some other kind of strain on the system. Yeah, but most of our houses have like high powered things and they shut off because they don't have enough power. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so so San Francisco is, is having brownouts. Actual uh, it, brownouts. It's, it's nothing new. It's okay. another. It's just it, there was another another. Uh, organization that did another study going back years and graphed out the the poop reports from San Francisco and the trend is definitely going up. Oh, we're not talking about electricity. No, we're not talking about okay, electricity. Okay. <laughs> a brownout in San Francisco is something very different, which um, <laughs> considering that we're about to go there in about a month, I'm not too excited about that number continuing to grow. But uh, yeah. Well, they, but, but wait a minute, they, they gave all, they get, all these private people gave all this money and to, to solve this problem. They it got rid of solved, all the right? porta potties, so now yeah, that's fixes it right on the streets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Poop Patrol's got got a job for life, I guess. Oh, man, man, yeah, it was just a funny little thing I, I thought I tossed in there to see because uh, it used to the word brownout. I was like, hmm. I literally thought they were talking about power outages. Yeah. Oh, San Francisco, you break my heart. I'll tell you that. So many, so many things I love about that city. But somebody, oh, uh, tomorrow uh, if you're in San Francisco, uh, it's 4:20, and apparently there's a there was a unofficial event, but now that uh, weed is legal there, it's becoming more of an official event where you go to like some uh, hippie hill or something like that, and you all light up. Okay. But uh, yeah, oh. if you're a hippie and for you those like, who partake, you like to. Toke. You don't have to be a you don't have to be a hippie to partake, John. Oh, whatever. What are you stuck in the 60s? Come on, man. After get, uh, after, get with it. After a few, you're all hippies, right? Oh, whatever. I don't know. I've never done it. <laughs> all right well um it's time for us to get out of here thank you for listening everyone on the on the live stream um if you would like to listen to our live stream someday that means you have to be in our slack um and if you're not in our slack then you should join our slack because you're listening and that means you're automatically qualified so the way you do do that is you go to gooddaysirpodcast.com you click on community and you'll get it's really fancy form with one with one box and one button because that's what the user story said there yes. will be a box and a button yep and um, 
you just put your email address in and John will add you manually. What else, John? Um, if you would like to send us, you know, topics or questions or you just want to rant and complain about us, uh, you do that at info at gooddaysforpodcast.com. That's a email address because it has the word at in it. Mm-hmm. What else? Oh, it could be Twitter handle. Um, yeah, leave us a review on wherever you get your podcast, wherever fine podcasts are served. Um, stars, hearts, all those things. They help, they help promote the show somehow or another. But most importantly, share it with your friends. Share us with your friends. Tell them about the show. Get them in the Slack channel. And they, you know, might find a, a group of like-minded people. What else, John? That's all. Appreciate it. And to that, I say good day, sir. You get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir.